Hello and welcome to the second episode of Something to Declare. Yes, thank you so much for listening. We're really glad that you're here with us. And thank you for all the lovely feedback from episode one. It's been great to hear from folks who've been listening to that and lots of uh, love and appreciation for Jeff uh, off the back of us listening to him last week. So thank you for everybody uh, getting in touch uh, with that. Yeah, it's, it's been great, especially because um, I listen to myself back and <laughs> I don't know about you, David, but it, it was a bit of a cringe experience for me. Every time. <laughs> so so um, I was thinking, David, I, I was going to ask, how are you? But I, I feel like um, what is more interesting question is um, if you follow David on Twitter or on Facebook, you'll see that every now and again, he puts these pictures up of books that he's been reading. I, I find them fascinating. So I wanted just to ask you a little bit more about that, David. Like, tell me, um, what books are you reading at the moment and, and or, or book that you're reading at the moment? What, what's, what's exciting you for that? Oh, well, yes. So um, I'm intrigued to know why, why it's fascinating, whether it's giving you some sort of window into my, my soul or something. But I started posting the pictures of, of books I've been reading on Facebook when I went on sabbatical uh, five years ago. Uh, partly as an interesting thing. I've had a lot of interesting conversations off the back of it. And, and also it kind of a bit of an accountability thing, bizarrely. You know, it kind of, oh, I haven't posted. It, it, I was trying to get back into the habit of reading more. I feel like that had kind of gradually been pushed out of my day and my week. And I really wanted to get back into doing more reading. So, yeah, so I just post the pictures up and it's always very interesting to see what things other people have been reading around those things. At the moment, I've just finished reading a book called Jesus Freak by Sarah Miles. It's the third book of hers I've read. She did a book called Take This Bread, uh, which I think is the one that most people have come across. And then we've got a church book group, which has just read her book, uh, City of God, which was based around uh, stories relating to Ash Wednesday as well. And I just find, I mean, they're very easy to read, but she's one of these people who, who really is able to stretch a story over pages and pages <laughs> and pages. Have you totally engrossed in it? And at the same time, say very profound things. You know, she doesn't need 800 pages and very complicated words. She has a real gift for uh, saying what I think are very interesting things in very succinct uh, ways, which is not a gift I particularly possess. So I'm even more appreciative of it. Uh, so, yeah, really, really enjoying Sarah Miles at the moment. And uh, I'm going to go on to read um, some. I've got a new book by Stanley Howes that's arrived this week. Um, you know, everyone should be forced to read some Stanley Howes at some point in their life. <laughs> And then, um, and then I've got another book that's arrived recently called Prayer in the Night by Tish Warren, who's an Episcopal priest in the States who wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, I think it was called, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. which I enjoyed very much. And then I'm, she's, this new book's just come out. So looking forward to reading reading that. Are you reading anything interesting at the moment? Um, yeah, so um, so I asked this because um, your, your, your feed is making me quite bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm I'm a I'm a massive book flirt. Um, so I have a habit of reading about four books at the same time. And mm-hmm. then when people say what are you reading, I freeze in kind of a panic because I think, oh, I'm reading lots of things. Which which one do I pick? So the last I'm trying to think what the last book I read in its entirety would have been. Um and I I read Post Traumatic Public Theology by Arrol and Rambo. Um and they wrote that um in the aftermath of the Boston bombings, it would highly recommend. Just for the, um, there's an introduction, um, which is worth the whole book, to be honest. And then Willie James Jennings, who is 
currently becoming I'm a bit of an obsessive actually so I'm starting to read like literally everything he's ever written <laughs> and um, he's got a chapter in there about veterans bodies which is it's just truly a remarkable piece of theological reflection and I would highly recommend um and then um uh so the other book I've read recently just kind of cover to cover was uh transgressive devotion by Natalie Big Stevenson and um I found a very complicated book to read, actually. Um, but I was really excited to read a book by a female Baptist minister. And that was really quite a moment. Um, the books I'm reading at the moment, I've got... Um, so I have books in like... <laughs> I have a book in my study and I have a book by my bed and I have a book in the kitchen and I have a book by the <laughs> baby's chair. So when I'm feeding, I can read a book. I just... I have like books everywhere. So um, I'm, yeah, totally a book flirt. Um, but I'm halfway through embracing hopelessness by i think you say might be delator anyway it's very good i would highly recommend as a critique of maltman who has previously been a huge hero of mine so it's a bit of a bit of a gut-wrenching theological moment now i might be totally wrong here yeah but uh none of those sound sort of light and fluffy to me (laughs) (laughs) they all sound quite hardcore and uh, I definitely think there's a place for for light and fluffy too. My uh, my reading that is I like to escape by reading books about geography and politics mainly, um, which I guess is not everybody's idea of a day off. But uh, if I'm not reading theology, um, that's where I go. Um, so I really do like. I genuinely find theology a bit of an escapism. I don't think I could read it that much if I didn't. Um, Oh God, I am just cementing my podcast reputation as a total geek here. But I've long since given up on, on fiction. Um, I, I love the idea of reading fiction. I just, I realised at university when I started reading, I had to read because it was like, you have to read in order to, you know, churn out the essays. Um, I, I stopped being able to read for fun. And I have never quite managed to switch back into fiction um very easily and i i think it's probably a thing that's massively missing from my life and if i do go back and read fiction i read i read the classics and i i go back to things i know well so and i've realized that you can do them by audiobook which is genius because if you're absolutely sleep deprived which um there is a point of like complete sleep deprivation right where your brain is so dead you can't focus the you can't even focus the words like you you you, they're just like swimming in front of you on a page and um so I, I've I've loved a lot of Barbara Brown Taylor for that because bless her, oh, yes. <laughs> available online yes. as an audiobook. Um, and um, I've also read recently Nicholas at the right time for my own life. Um, so I read it just as I was coming back into work, and it was all about how do you create Sabbath time and sabbatical time. And um, it's yeah, it was a gift, and I I needed it, and I'm very grateful for it. And she talks about the freedom of like uh going down and reading you know following the footnotes she calls it the, the freedom of following the footnotes and this idea that um you can chase them up and you can you can go and say right I'm going to read that book now because that's an interesting thought and I'm just going to spiral off in that direction and I I've so I given since reading that book I give myself permission to go and like spiral off into the footnotes which is part of the reason I think I've got about like a pile a pile of books next to my desk that I need to now read because every time I read a book I'm like oh I need to now read five billion more books um but it's been yeah it's been it's been fun I've enjoyed it and um yeah I think I'm always somebody who finds you know reading kind of 
big complex things genuinely a fascinating thing to kind of turn my brain off but um I don't know if that makes any sense but I think because yeah I think if I read like fiction I I feel the pastoral consequences of all the characters and and for me reading kind of big ideas doesn't do that in the same way so it's easier to switch off from totally get that I mean I, I did English and drama as my first degree subject and that kind of ruined reading fiction for me in a number of ways <laughs> it became work to read the novel you, you know it just didn't um I'm hoping to get back into it at some point and occasionally I do do read some some fiction but I, I find reading theology or politics far more interesting and I find I can relax very much into that as well um yeah I think there is something about the the pastoral <laughs> connection with the characters which actually makes it not always as relaxing as you would want um i remember once reading a fiction book for you know relaxation and then realizing it was literally set in cowley which was what I was ministering at the time and i was oh, like wow okay no <laughs> and i'll put this down yeah i've not come across any fiction set in shubri ness uh, <laughs> but maybe maybe there's a gap in the market there maybe i should be be writing maybe something. you should be writing it yeah, yeah. if i ever ever publish a book then you know that the world has plumbed new depths uh i just do not have the skills uh to make that uh, a going concern and uh, the world should be saved from having that inflicted upon them so we've started a podcast instead uh which is <laughs> much much more my sort of medium um but uh, you did our interview this week uh, I did. and uh, tell us a little bit about it Oh, well, it's the fabulous Emma Nash this week. Um, Reverend Emma Nash, Baptist minister. In fact, she is a Baptist evangelist to get her full credentials up there. Um, I trained with Emma at Regents, so that's how I know her. Um, And um, she's just one of those people it's a privilege to know. And very high on my list of fabulous human beings in general. And also in the Baptist world, particularly. Um, and um, she's now working ecumenically, and uh, we're going to, you know, we talk about that in in the interview that um, that you'll hear in a moment. Um, and um, and I think um, I think one of the reasons. So so it's interesting, isn't it? Out of last week, um, Jeff texts me to say, "I'm you," because you said I was holy. <laughs> And you should talk to some people who who know me really well. I also think Emma is extremely holy. She would also be the first person to say that she wasn't. And now I, I absolutely am starting to think that maybe like a ranking of holiness is that you don't think you're holy. Absolutely. Um, absolutely right. So so I think Emma's uh one of our prophets. I think she is such a gift. Um and she's certainly an extremely kind friend. Um, that even when she's going through huge stuff of her own, she will always make the space for you. And I, I just think that level of compassion, it's, it's unfakeable. It, it, it just comes out of a genuine depth of character. And um, she's going to tell a bit of her own story. So I don't, I don't want to kind of preempt that because I want it to be in her own words. But um, yeah, I think, um, I think her whole approach uh, her whole her whole way of of owning her story and naming what's happening to her is is a sign of that depth of character and um 
well, we'll listen in, maybe, and then uh, people can hear it for themselves, and then we'll come back to it when when that's happened. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's hear from Emma. Hello, Emma. It's really nice to have you on the podcast today. Um, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, so. Um, Emma, shall we introduce you first? You are the Reverend Emma Nash. Um, you are the Mission and Community Engagement Officer in the Evangelism and Growth Team in the Methodist Church. And you're a Baptist minister. Um, some of us know you, but perhaps some people tuning in today, they won't have, have heard of you before and know you and your story. So um, do you want to explain a bit about that? Why are you a Baptist? And maybe a bit about why are you working for the Methodists? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll start with why I'm a Baptist, um, but I, I'm not sure how edifying this story is because it was a little bit random, really. Um, I was in my 20s. I was a very, very new Christian. I'd just done the Alpha course. I was moving back um, to my hometown after studying away and I needed to find a church. And someone said to me, every Baptist church I've been to has been really cool. So I thought, OK, I'll find my nearest Baptist church. And that was Central Baptist Church in Chelmsford, uh, which at that time was pastored by uh, Paul Beasley Murray, who I didn't know at the time was actually quite a well-known Baptist. <laughs> so, uh, and he, he was a fabulous pastor to have, and that church really loved me and, and served me well. So it was kind of a bit random um, in terms of how I ended up uh, Baptist. Um, in terms of um, why I'm now working uh, for the Methodist Church, um, I am... Uh, um, well, I'm an accredited evangelist within the Baptist Union, which I guess some listeners will know about, most listeners won't know about. And to be honest, it was a category of ministry we had for 20 years-ish, and then we don't have any more because we're all on the same list. So um, essentially, uh, after starting at this Baptist church randomly, um, because every Baptist church is apparently really cool, uh, I, I was baptised um, and a few years later started exploring a call to ministry um, and it took a while because I, I knew that I was called to evangelism, but I wasn't sure that I was called to pastor a local church. And um, Paul Beasley Murray was really encouraging. He said, Emma, we need ministers with evangelistic passion. Um, but I just wasn't 100% sure. And I explored overseas mission and I explored church planting and nothing really kind of worked out or clicked. And I eventually um, applied for ministerial recognition as an evangelist, which you could do at the time because it was kind of, um, it was about initial conscience for me, really. I, I, I couldn't hold my hand up, um, hand on heart, say I'm called to pastor a, a church, but I knew that I was called to evangelism. And um, so I had to articulate, well, why you're a Baptist in ministerial recognition. And so what I said, uh, what I found myself saying was, um, for me, it was about a believer's baptism. And that made a lot of sense to me because I came to faith um, as an adult, I was in, I was 23 when I uh, started exploring faith. I hadn't been taken to church as a child at all. Um, so I really was coming to faith completely new. And so it made sense to me, you know, I made a decision as an adult, I received baptism as a believer. And the equal recognition of, of women's ministry was really important to me too. And interestingly, um, I remember asking Paul, do you have women ministers in the Baptist Union? At literally an alpha dinner so I mean I, I think it was before my baptism so it's kind of really weird how early that started yeah 
Um, do you think? Do you think we? Do we think we have an equal women in ministry? Is that a controversial question to ask back? <laughs> it's controversial, but I'm, I'm okay with controversial questions. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, I remember saying, I remember getting very upset um, and saying to Paul, "But the Baptist denomination recognises women. Why does some people have an issue with it?" And Paul kind of tries to explain that it's not quite how it works. You know, we're we're an associate. You know, we're we're churches that choose to associate together, but we don't have, you know, one um, one fixed policy. And so churches have the freedom to be as sexist as you like. You might want to edit that bit out. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's tricky. Before I before I came to faith, um, I was a um, I was trained to be a teacher, and then um, I, I started teaching at the same time I started going to church, and. You know, my gender was never an issue when I was a teacher. I never really sensed my gender was an issue outside of church life. And it was only when I became a Christian that I suddenly discovered that I had friends my age who were women who didn't think women should preach. And that just blew my mind. I um, just, you know, I also discovered that Christians didn't, uh, well, some Christians didn't approve of gay people. And I was pretty horrified to discover that too. So, um, yeah. I, I'm not sure I'd agree that, that women have full, women's ministry is fully recognised and as we know there's a lot of work to be done around you know the um, affirmation of LGBT people in the church um, but certainly in theory um, women can minister in the Baptist Union equally to men in theory. Good theory, we like the theory. Um, so you've ended up working for Methodists. Um, yeah. So how did how did that happen? How do you move from being in a uh, you know evangelist and Baptist ministry to kind of then ending up um, working for a different denomination? Has that shaped your Baptist identity differently, or maybe keeps it, or does it make it more pronounced? Perhaps it's a really interesting question. So the way the way it happened, I. I was not in a terribly spiritual way. Um, I, I sensed that the the time I was realizing that the the time had come for me to move on from the post that I had in a local Baptist church, and I went on the Church Times website and they were advertising the job. Um, I mean, I I have found as as someone called to evangelism, and possibly a pioneer. I'm not I'm not never quite sure how much I would identify as a pioneer, but to an extent, I think I do. Um, to an extent, I also think the language is irrelevant, actually. Um, but I, I find it very difficult to find my place in ministry um, within the kind of usual um, channels. So the settlement process I found very difficult. Um, and I remember once, um, the, you know, how you get the, the week, the monthly email saying your name has been sent to these churches. And uh, one month... <laughs> One month the email came out, well the email didn't come so I, I I contacted the administrator for the association and she just said oh we haven't sent your name anywhere this month. I've had that one. So, <laughs> I've never settled on the settlement system. <laughs> right so we have that in, I didn't know that so we have that in common. Yeah so I so I rang up the regional minister um, and bless him he, he had a long chat with me on the phone and we went through the whole list of I think about 160 different churches that were looking for ministers at the time and I said to him very bluntly because I can be quite blunt at times is it because I'm a woman um and he said no it's because you're an evangelist mm. 
Uh, and it was, it, you know, the reality was that there were very few churches that were explicitly looking for, well, I don't think any who were explicitly looking for an evangelist. There were relatively few that were looking for a community worker or someone to kind of develop mission and evangelism. There were some, but not many. Um, I was also restricted because I, by then I got married and my husband had a job that he'd been doing for a long time. And his was the only financial security we had, you know, so I, I was kind of looking for my first post. And, um, you know, he, he just said, are you really asking me to give up my job? Um, and go anywhere you know this was this was our kind of one um, bit of security and so I felt like I was being terribly unspiritual at the time by saying I have a geographical restriction actually looking back now I would say you know we all have restrictions certainly we all have places we couldn't go or we, we all have caring responsibilities or you know we very few of us can literally go anywhere hmm. but um, yeah I was I was finding that very difficult and there were a few occasionally my name would be sent to a very small church perhaps with the idea all oh, this church clearly needs to grow this church needs to reach out to its community maybe an evangelist would be a good fit but my fear was you know really are those churches ready for an evangelist are they do they really want to pay the price do they really want a minister who is going to prioritize people who don't go to the church mm. and um i've always loved that quote um from archbishop Arch, i've always loved that quote from archbishop william temple um, you know, the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And that's kind of the heart of my call to ministry. That's absolutely what I'm about. Um, and there are very few churches who, who are, are up for saying, yeah, we want to prioritize our non-members. So yeah, the settlement process, I found very difficult. And um, I have been in settlement um, twice in two different periods of my ministry. And, and both times I have not found a, a church that way. Um, the first time uh, someone posted a job ad in the um, CMS Pioneer Facebook group. That was how I got my first post in ministry. And um, the, the second time around, I saw the advert in the Church Times. And um, I, I remember saying to my regional minister after I got the job, um, I said, you know, if you have these posts in the Baptist Union, Nick, I would apply for them. But, you know, sadly, as we know, you know, finances being what they are, we, you know, there, there are relatively few posts um for sort of certainly central baptist union posts for for mission and evangelism i know there are some regional ministers some associations have appointed yeah. regional ministers yeah so i know of ali bolton and lizzie kaplan who are doing that i'm sure there are others and um simon goddard and roy searle of course are doing great stuff nationally um but there's relatively few posts really to focus on mission and evangelism so that's how i ended up working for the methodists oh, yeah i think the um i think the theory um I, I, I sort of don't why I'm providing the theory, but I'll tell you what I think the theory is. I think the theory is that mission belongs in the local church, um, that the, that it is always the local church's job to do the mission, and and actually, um, I kind of, as we sit light to our central structures, that actually it wasn't you know the kind of the role of the union to have some sort of big central sort of sending out thing because it would need to be local and contextual and appropriate, and therefore you get kind of the mission forum stuff and and like the local association mission leads rather than the kind of you know set in the kind of decot I, I say in air quotes and nobody can see us can they <laughs> you know whatever decot is meant to be because none of us are in decot at the moment <laughs> and we're all working from home. <laughs> yeah. um so I I think yeah I think it's a really interesting one um, we've had that it's a conversation that happens a lot in our team and the faith and society team about um you know kind of how do we 
you know, this is part of mission. We think this is missional. How is this ever explained as part of our mission? So, um, so who or what maybe has been influential in your kind of your journey so far and maybe in your Baptist identity specifically, but perhaps just in general? Hmm. Well, Paul Beasley-Murray was incredibly influential, certainly in terms of my ministerial formation. Um, he baptised me, he you know, discipled me um, and was very encouraging when I, I sort of was exploring calls in ministry. One of the things, and I'm so grateful to him, one of the things he did was almost to try and put me off. He kind of said, <laughs> Emma, don't think that if you if you start working for the church, it's going to be lovely because you'll be working with Christians and they're all lovely. He said, it's not how it is. Um, <laughs> And he was absolutely right, you know, to say, you know, please, you know do not have any illusions. Uh, and, and I love that quote from Spurgeon about, you know, if you could, I mean, it's not, he, didn't he say, if a man can do anything else, he should do it. Um, <laughs> make it slightly more um, gender neutral. You know, if you can do anything else, do it. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't, and I still can't. Um, and Paul, uh, certainly when um, I then went to Regents for ministerial um, formation, uh, I was kind of exposed to a more sacramental approach, um, a more sacramental way of being Baptist, which was really, really enriching for me. Um, and uh, an, an ecumenical experience that, again, was, was really good for me. Not that I always enjoyed it, but really good. Um, and I remember distinctly uh, a class with the very gracious Myra Blythe, who was talking, I now realise, was talking about sacraments. I didn't understand what she was talking about and I got quite stroppy because I was just so confused and um, one of my uh, uh, lovely friends later sort of helped me reflect on this what was going on there and I realized afterwards I had such a reformed theology without realizing it you know it didn't occur to me that you know communion could be anything other than completely symbolic and just a bit of bread and some grape juice for example and um, but kind of little by little bit by bit um, particularly by um, meeting with ecumenical colleagues that my, my theology was was enriched I was exposed to, to other um, other theologies other ways of, of looking at the Christian life um, and the opt-out services were always fascinating where um, uh, the, the um, different so there are several um, Church of England's colleges in Oxford, there are a couple of Catholic colleges in Oxford, and there was the Regents, the Baptist College, and we'd be mixed up and sent to each other's um, college chapels for worship. Um, and then once a year, we'd have this joint service. And it was, and I always ended up kind of giggling or grumbling or both on the back row, you know, because, um, because the differences were so enormous. And yet, just by being challenged by something, such a different spirituality, you know, so I remember vividly, one service where you know the Baptists were preaching so people were grumbling like oh man the Baptists will go on forever um and St Stephen's house were leading worship and they um and and they, there was a prayer around Mary the Queen of Heaven and so the evangelicals kind of refused to, to pray it um and um but uh, you know I'm laughing and, and I don't mean to you know to laugh at any of my colleagues it was just so it was so awkward but so important that awkwardness was so important in helping us understand you know helping us see our blind spots um and then uh i i i i'm so grateful for that i had um, a fascinating conversation with a dominican friar after one of those octet services um at dinner uh, in regents um we, we had the the dinner afterwards at regents and he was 
he was talking about a hymn that we'd sung at that optic service. And it was, you know, that, um, and can it be? My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. And he was kind of talking, not at all critical, just in a very kind of reflective mood. And he was saying, I wonder when that happened for me. He said, I guess it was when I was a baby and I was baptized. And that was so helpful for me to, to, to be exposed to just such a different understanding of salvation and baptism and what was going on there. And then, um, you know, talking with someone who I really respected, who saw things in such a different way was incredibly helpful for me. I, um, I think I can identify with that kind of ecumenism being kind of formational in, in kind of both Baptist identity and also in sort of challenging your um, my, my Baptist identity and, and I work also ecumenically sometimes we get to hang out occasionally at Methodist church house which is really cool um, uh, but I, I think for me it's always this kind of experience of like constantly being like ah okay well there's this completely different way so um, maybe that sometimes is a gift and I need to be a bit of a um, like an ecclesiological magpie and steal this shiny thing that this other tradition is doing that's brilliant and I need it um, and maybe sometimes it's about saying uh, oh no that's actually telling me a bit about why I am the way I am because actually that's still really important to me um, yeah I think um, I come I, I find myself often um, in both places kind of almost at the same time sometimes and I can kind of like what is this this is um both a gift and yet also like kind of revealing to me my own my own internal identity of this is why I am the way I am so I I can totally echo that yeah um so I wonder um I wonder where you've seen God at work in the world recently it's um that's a big question isn't it um but I um in the work that you're doing you know evangelism church growth the works where, where is God at work in the world for you well there's 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 amazing stuff that God is doing in the Methodist church at the moment and it's a, an incredible privilege to be part of that so um the the post that I have on the, the evangelism and growth team it's a new team it was um created only two years ago um and it kind of in response to uh a renewed kind of movement towards um, evangelism and church growth in the Methodist church. So it was, it was kind of a, it was a springing up of something that was going on in Methodism and Methodist conference voted to, for, for, you know, a renewed emphasis on evangelism and church growth. And um, it's so interesting because um, I'm, I am an evangelist and I've explored kind of language of, of pioneering and, um, you know, and, and other, other language, but, but I keep coming back to the word evangelist. And I, uh, I'm all about kind of speaking of God and, and kind of revealing God. That's kind of what I'm about. Um, and, and what I love about Methodists, I love about Methodists is how committed they are to social justice. They are so passionate. You know, you never need to convince a Methodist that social justice is important, that God is on the side of the poor. They just get it. They're just there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but Methodists are kind of, to make a sweeping statement, this is not true of all Methodists. Methodists are in total 
it says the emphasis on maybe less comfortable with evangelism, not all Methodists, but, but some Methodists are less comfortable. Whereas in, you know, I, I recognize from my Baptist experience, you know, I, I never had any trouble convincing my church that we should do evangelism. But if we were doing a social justice project, they say, well, well, you know, be careful. It's not the social gospel because that's not really what it's about. Um, yeah. And so, how is this going to enable us to convert some people, right? <laughs> yeah. You can run the food bank, but the food bank is there to convert the people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, and convert them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's when people ask, why are you doing this? Then we have the opportunity to do the real thing, which is to talk about Jesus. Um, I, I, so I, what I love is that the, there's a, um, a really, we're really clear in our team that evangelism and social justice are gospel partners. Um but our team, the work of our team is particularly um, around, you know, we believe that church growth is possible. We don't mean that in a capitalistic way or a, or a way that ignores the challenges, but we, you know, we believe God wants to transform God's world that, um, and God chooses to use the church in that. Mm. And um, so a huge part of the work of the team is around um, church planting. And in Methodism, we talk about new places for new people. And so my, my colleagues Matt and Eunice particularly doing a, a huge amount of work around that. My work is more about existing Methodist churches um, that want to move into change and growth and, and engage with their communities and in practice what that looks like is a lot of work around mission action planning and leadership development and I've, we've, I've also ended up falling into a, a bit of work around digital engagement as well and what does it mean to, um, to do church in the digital realm um, I mean, I, we have you on here then. <laughs> absolutely. So I, I've been learning Zoom the last year. I mean, having having never attended a webinar, let alone run one, um, eighteen months ago, I've been learning Zoom inside out and kind of running training along with my colleagues, and learning how to edit video and use YouTube properly, not just do it for cat videos. You know, um, <laughs> how, how all of these things work. And I, you and I were joking about the fact I'm, I'm a borderline millennial. I'm kind of not quite, I'm kind of on the edge of Gen X, but just about millennial. So I kind of like social media, but I don't quite get it. So I've had to, I've had to learn that. Not on um, TikTok then. <laughs> not on TikTok yet, no. But, it, but it's so exciting. It's such a privilege. And, and a lot of what I do, you know, it's finding out what great stuff is already going on. So there are already lots of Methodists doing great stuff in community engagement. Uh, and in mission planning and so on. So it's finding out about the good stories. It's finding out about where people are doing great stuff and, and connecting them up, working with um, with colleagues. And I just um, absolutely love that. It's it's incredibly exciting. Mm. It comes across. That's really yeah. I am. Um, am I right in thinking that Methodist churches had to have like a, a plan that says this is either how we're going to die well or this is how we're going to grow? Is that is that right? That every Methodist church had to come up with that kind of answer yeah pretty much um so i think it was in conference 2017 um one of um uh, our, our then president um who's an amazing woman amazing leader uh, stood up and said every church needs a growth plan or an end of life plan and um and one of my other colleagues who's also a fabulous um leader uh, raised now i don't entirely understand methodist polity but she kind of put forward a notice of motion um, my, my Methodist colleagues are going to listen to this and be like, oh, Emma, how do you not understand this stuff yet? But anyway, <laughs> um, the uh, conference kind of um, agreed that every church should have a growth plan or an end of life plan. And um, I mean, uh, so mission planning 
um, or mission action planning in the Anglican Church. We, we call it mission planning in the Methodist Church, but basically we're talking about the same thing. Um, we're encouraging churches to, to have a plan of how, how they're going to reach out to their communities. Um, and and I, keep, I keep saying, you know, it's about doing what you can, not what you can't. You know, so we're not saying to churches, you know, um, you know, you need to run all these incredible ministries that are incredibly demanding of time and take a lot of money when you don't have those resources. Um, but we're saying, what's the one thing that God is calling you to? What's the one thing God would want want you to do? Um, and um, so that's that's what a lot of my work is around. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I think if we can ever have a national role for youth. <laughs> in the rugby structures <laughs> we would um we will happily nab you back off the methodists <laughs> um so um talk a bit about kind of how your cubanism has formed your baptist identity and um kind of bit what, what you see god being at in the work how god is at the work in the world but um being a bit more specific about your life um do you want to if i just say tell us about broken theology do you want to take it from there um yeah and and then we maybe talk about your book a little bit as well but tell us about broken theology yeah so i started a blog a few years ago and um i um i really enjoy blogging so i enjoy writing and i discovered quite a lot of people were reading it i mean i don't say i don't mean a lot as in hundreds or thousands but you know people unexpected people were reading it so um uh you know friends um who you know who don't go to church um but you know we're curious um we're reading it and i thought oh, there's, there's there's something here you know that this and i you know I, I just really enjoyed it and um i've decided to uh, I, I finally relaunched it um and i have a, a website <laughs> so i've actually just got all this stuff now i had to you know what does it mean to host a website i had to google it but this is a brilliant thing about google you can google anything you know <laughs> it's about web hosting now you know um so I have a website, it's brokentheology.org. And um, I've literally just, just started, I started blogging on Holy Saturday, very deliberately. Yeah. Uh, and Holy Saturday is a day that's taken on real significance for me over the last few years. Um, and I, I, write, I, I write, so I have written a book and um, my book is A Pastoral Theology of Childlessness. And it comes out of the, the my experience of, of infertility and um, unwanted childlessness and having to come to terms with that as a Christian and, and as a minister at, at that time, pastoring a local church. Uh, I was in a team ministry, fortunately, and my colleagues were incredibly um, supportive, but having to, having to come to terms with um, a huge area of grief in my life, a huge area of disappointment as a Christian, let alone as someone who's meant to be leading other people um, in the faith. And the, one of the ways that I, I sought healing was in the library. Uh, so I, I, I was able to take a sabbatical. I wasn't due a sabbatical, my church were incredibly kind and they gave me um, an unpaid sabbatical, but they helped um, financially um, towards my housing and towards the cost of counseling, which I was really grateful for. And I spent three months kind of in the British library reading everything I could find about infertility and childlessness. And um, there was a lot of great stuff out there, but not mostly not written by Christians. Uh, and it was really helpful to me, but it didn't help me understand the presence of God in my experience. Um, I found a couple of really excellent um, books and articles that did help me. Um, but generally there, there wasn't much out there. 
And so I kind of, I needed a pastoral theology of childlessness. So I wrote one and it was really my own, my own healing, it was my own therapy. Um, but also there was a sense of wanting to say something and wanting to be heard. Yeah. And um, so I, uh, so the book's coming out on the 31st of May, it's been published by SVM. I'm incredibly grateful to them um, for taking a risk on a first time author. Um, and it, it was a, it, it was great actually being being challenged to actually finish the book. And, and what's so interesting is I preached a sermon literally just a couple of weeks ago. And it was only 10 minutes long. And in in writing the sermon, I've, a number of thoughts coalesced for me that had kind of been forming as I was writing the book, but then they uh, they kind of came together. And I was writing about, I was uh, speaking about resurrection. And um, I was thinking very much from what does resurrection mean to me, but also thinking what does resurrection what does resurrection mean to um, the people in my church who I love, who have been through a horrific year, um, some of whom have had terrible bereavements, lost people that they love, um, many of whom have lost all kinds of other things. Um, what does resurrection mean for them? What does it mean to live in resurrection? And I was thinking about. Um, Mary and Jesus, Mary crying in the garden and Jesus asking her woman, why are you crying? And, and yet, um, you know, the fact that he, it, and it sounds really abrupt in modern in British English, doesn't it? Woman, why are you crying? But, but actually, you know, that he's, he's really saying, dear woman, you know, it's, a, it's an expression of, of love and respect um, and that Jesus meets our tears with love. But then I was thinking, so, but then what does it mean to get up? What does resurrection mean? Um, and I was, thinking about Jesus getting up and leaving the grave clothes and, and, and into new life. And that perhaps resurrection is a form of protest. Mm. You know, we defy everything that drags us down. We get up and we live because Christ is risen and we rise with him. And that energy, that kind of energy that transforms, you know, really was what happened when I wrote my book. It was transforming my grief into action, into there was an incredible energy, creative energy there. Um, and I, you know, I hope the book helps other people. I, I believe it's not just applicable to people who are, who um, can't have children. Uh, you know, and, I, and I would say, I want to be very clear, I don't believe all people should have children. Um, mm. The book is about involuntary childlessness, people who want to have children but can't for whatever reason. Um, I, but I believe there's something there um, around brokenness for so many of us. There are so many losses that people live with. And um, certainly as, probably not as a Baptist, but as, as someone uh, who's brought up within evangelicalism. And I guess most Baptist churches will broadly be quite evangelical. And, and, I, and I, my sense is that in evangelicalism, there isn't always, you know, that, you know, how do we cope with pain? What, what, how do we cope with prayers that are not answered? And there's no kind of great spiritual insight, and there's you know there's no resolution. It's just it just hurts. So that's what broken theology is about. Redemption. <laughs> I just think I think we have there's like a right kind of pain, isn't it? It was allowed to be painful, but then it had to have like a salvation story. And what happens if you don't have the salvation story that goes with your pain? And I think, yeah. I often reflect on that too. Um, mm. I think it's a really tricky one, actually. What does it doesn't neatly sum up in a 
10 minute little this was a hard time in my life but then God was there for me and it was all transformed what what happens if it's not transformed and you you live with the scars I mean that's what Jesus does right he lives with this you know he resurrected body look here it is you know here are my wounds and I think I yeah I find I find that some of that work in disability theology actually very helpful for my own life just um not even looking at it from kind of a big kind of you know social political pastoral framework just selfishly for myself <laughs> so yeah so broken theology then do you think um it's about trying to do something with this not having easy answers is, is that the way or just just the sense of still being broken in resurrection life and yeah, a bit of both, really. Um, so I, I have a strap line on the blog, um, trying to make sense of life's mess before God. Um, at, so that's kind of what I'm trying to do. And, and the brokenness is around, for me, being broken. And actually, I think all people are broken, um, you know, um, in, in all kinds of different ways. But also the, the, my theology kind of broke when, when I, I discovered that I would never have a baby. Um, the answers that I that used to make sense to me didn't make sense anymore. Um, I mean, that's I'm I'm exaggerating because it, it didn't break completely. And pastoral theology was an incredible gift. And you know that um, when I went, uh, you know, and, and what I was taught about you know, the incredible resources of of scripture and of Christian theology were there for me to mine. But I kind of was mining the scriptures in a new way um, and found some wonderful things along the way. I've become really obsessed with the book of Ruth. <laughs> it's just, I just love it. I just think it's amazing uh, for all kinds of different reasons. And I love the passage where um, Naomi just says, you know, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because, you know, I'm empty. I'm bitter. God, God is, you know, I went away full and, and now I'm empty. And, um, uh, you know, and, and that's just there, her, her kind of raw pain is there. And of course she's in pain, you know, she's lost her children and her husband. But quite apart from anything else, that would be excruciating. And she's in a patriarchal society where she relies entirely on men for her support. And yet this woman, Ruth, who's her daughter-in-law, you know, and there's so many jokes in our culture, aren't there, about mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law. And her daughter-in-law says, you know, I won't leave you. Mm. Um, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Um, it's just beautiful uh, and she stays with her and two women kind of stay together and they and they take charge of their lives and then they, 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 there's that um, scene on the threshing floor where Ruth uncovers Boaz's feet whatever we understand that <laughs> exactly but then it's clear that Boaz already knows who she is um, and so you kind of think well why didn't he do anything about it before he's he's, he's kinsman redeemer um, and so there's, I almost wonder whether like the women, they kind of, he's almost shamed into helping them. They, they kind of, they're like, I'm in your power now. What are you going to do to help me? So on one level, it's a story about women that need a man to help them, to save them. And on one level, it's a story about a woman who has a baby and then everything's okay again. But actually it's about an awful lot more than that. And at the end of the story, the women who are unnamed say to Naomi, you know, your daughter Ruth is your daughter-in-law Ruth is worth more to you than seven sons which is an incredible statement yeah. to make that this this family has been formed that 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 transcends biology that these two women love each other and have 
created this bright future. Amazing. It's a great story. I really like it. So in your um, kind of coming back to that evangelism, how do you think broken theology connects with evangelism? Do you connect them together? Would, would you? How would you? That's really interesting because my passion is for communicating faith to people who don't go to church. And I, I have kind of thought, yeah, it's probably not a very seeker-friendly title, really, isn't it? Broken theology. Um, and, yeah, it probably wouldn't appeal to all people. But there's something about... Um, that I think honesty is incredibly important to me. Um, you know, so I would never want to do evangelism in a way that, you know, pretends that, hey, become a Christian, it's all going to be great. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? I mean, we know that's not... Lay down quite. your life, pick up your cross and... Yeah. God's abundant blessings. <laughs> yeah. but, but you know, um, but the the Christian story, you know, but I mean, God God becomes broken on the cross. I mean, completely physically, emotionally broken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and another um, book of the Bible that I just adore and that I've written a lot about in my book, I kind of went off on a long rant actually about Ecclesiastes because I just love it. It's just amazing. Um, and, you know, the, the honesty and the authenticity of the teacher of Ecclesiastes just saying, life is meaningless. <laughs> and you're like, what, really? <laughs> you're allowed to say that? But, you know, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, you know, the, the, the people who put it together, who kept these texts and, and, and kept, you know, put the canon together and, and kept them as one, they chose to keep it in there. Um, and, um, and I love how he kind of um, he challenges the kind of smug certainties of the rest of the wisdom tradition, which kind of says, you know, the, um, those who fear God will prosper and the foolish will perish, you know, and, uh, you know, isn't that neat? And, and the teacher says, hang on a minute, that, what? That's not true. That's not how life is. So I guess, I guess, um, I hope that there's something there for people who, you know, would not call themselves Christians, but who are finding life hard and um, who are not convinced by all the religious certainties. Um, but, but maybe... I've become really um, massive fan of Maltman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, theologies of the cross that affirm that Christ is with us in suffering. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I believe in sin. I absolutely believe that humans are sinful, that I am sinful and that I need to repent. I need to be forgiven completely. Believe that, you know, you only need to look at how broken our world is in all kinds of ways to see that sin is a reality. Um, um, but there's but and there's sin that we do but there's also sin done to us and then there's also brokenness that has nothing to do with sin you know I'm not I'm not infertile because of my sin or because of anyone else's sin it's just a thing it just happened um and um and yet you know I worship a God who chose to be with me in my godforsakenness he chose to be thoroughly broken you know and and there's um I love the um the statue of Christa Edwina Sanders statue of Christa, the female Christ from the cross. And then um, I found myself thinking about Christa when I was thinking about going through IVF and, you know, how she's, um, you know, she's just completely exposed and, you know, how infertility treatment, you are completely exposed, it's humiliating. 
you get a lot of needles stuck in you, you know, um, and it's humiliating for men too, you know, um, because, you know, a man gets sent into a little room with a plastic cup and a few magazines, maybe, you know, it's just mortifying. And, 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 and this, and, you know, thinking about Christ on the cross, he's completely exposed. He's, he's naked, um, you know, because that's reality, isn't it? Of first century um, executions, which, you know, we kind of modestly cover Christ's nakedness in most artwork for, for, for all sorts of good reasons. But I mean, that was the reality that he was exposed to the world and he was pierced. And, um, you know, that um, knowing that, that Christ has, has shared brokenness, to, knowing that Christ has shared brokenness at that level, is incredibly healing to me. Mm. Um, and then there's a the resurrection, you know, that it doesn't end with that, that Christ, not that that is reversed, not that, you know, it's not a case of, right, forget about the cross, everyone, because Jesus is alive. But, uh, you know, Jesus is alive, but he bears the scars. Mm. And, and incredibly. into heaven, into the heart of heaven. And I think that's the thing for me, is this, this divine swap that happens, isn't there? I think the kind of the ascension is we don't really talk about it much and it's it's such an under underused piece of theology but it, that body goes up to the heart of heart of heaven and I think um it's so confusing because it just looks like a kind of cloudy elevator but I think it's so for me that's so significant that human body goes up and in, and we get this divine swap where God comes into us that we get God in our broken bodies and I just think this kind of remarkable yeah I think that's really astonishing and I I love I love that um so um we always ask two questions at the end of, of every interview uh and um and the first one is if you had one thing to to, to declare to the union what would it be well I kind of have two things is that allowed that's allowed. we'll give you two so I mean the first thing would be you know, we, we have the freedom, this incredible freedom to pioneer, to, um, to conduct missional experiments. You know, you were saying earlier, Beth, that, you know, mission takes place, you know, we believe at, at local, primarily at local level, it was resourced at local level, commissioned at local level. Um, you know, we have this, this freedom. So let's make the most of that freedom. Um, let's live as if we believe that the church was the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And let's release funds to deploy pioneers and church planters, um, because you know there, there's there's a world out there that that needs to hear a message of hope. And you know maybe a lot of people would not feel they're comfortable coming into a church building. Maybe they might struggle to kind of connect with the way we do church. But um, but so let's go let's go out. Let's find what that means for each local church to go out there. And, and kind of prioritize people who are not already on our pews. Mm. Um, and, and seeing what's going on in the Methodist church and the incredible um, move towards um, starting new places for new people and conducting missional experiments um, is so inspiring. And, and, you know, we don't have the facility within the Baptist Union, we can't kind of release funds centrally at that level. Um, but, you know, the funds are there in local church something and the people are there and the passion is there in local churches so I would just I would just love to see us really take that seriously and the other thing I would say and I I've been just sensing more and more uh, that we need we need to really start a conversation continue a conversation about same-sex marriage and about um just 
just the, the that our rainbow siblings are loved by God, created by God, and you know, unconditionally loved. And and the silence in most local churches is deafening. And I've been part of that silence and I held my hand up and I regret it and I repent of that silence because I've been so scared to say anything. And the sad thing is, you know, because I'm not in a local church at the moment, I, I have a lot more freedom um, to say that uh, I just spent, you know, all that time, uh, I didn't say anything. And, you know, thinking, well, you know, if, if someone, if a gay person comes forward, you know, maybe we'll figure this out at the church. Um, when that happens but why am I expecting someone to come forward you know why am I expecting someone who's incredibly vulnerable to trust me um, to tell me about their sexuality and trust that that will be okay and I will accept them and love them um, we you know if even churches that are, are not going to register for same-sex marriage need to be talking about well, how do we let gay people in our churches or in our communities know that they're loved mm. Because, you know, surely all, all Baptist Christians, all Christians can surely can say, you know, we are all equally loved and created by God. I would hope so. I would hope so. It is our conversation waiting to begin, to quote uh, a Donovan book, um, isn't it? It's the Anglican text from the 1980s. I think <laughs> it definitely feels like, yeah, we're, we, I think, I think we're starting the conversation, but it's, um, it's a tricky, really tricky one to have. People have such divided views on it's, um Yes, I, I watch it from the inside, so I will leave it at that. But um, I will, it is, yes, thank you for declaring that to our union. Um, if you think Baptists have one thing to declare to the world, what would it be? Well, I was thinking about this and um, having said everything that I've said about um, you know, my, my Dominican friend and, um, you know, that conversion happens in all kinds of ways and is understood in all kinds of different ways. Um, there's something about the waters of baptism. There's an invitation there. And it's, um, it's really interesting, actually. Um, I've been going through the adoption process with my husband and um, we sometimes get asked, um, you know, oh, well, you know, what if your child doesn't want to go to church when they're older? Like, what will you do about that? Because, you know, social workers kind of want to know that we're not going to be fundamentalists that are going to you know, drag our kids kicking and screaming to church. Um, and, you know, and I, I find myself saying, well, I'm a Baptist. You know, we, we believe that, you know, our children, um, we wait until that they, you know, they make a commitment for themselves. Um, and of course, it's not just children. I wasn't a child. I was an adult. There's this incredible um, invitation. God is not forcing himself on anyone it's actually the one thing I agree with Richard Dawkins about 100% Richard Dawkins says there's no such thing as a Christian child and I agree with him yeah I'm like absolutely completely right this you know we all come to God one by one um we come to the foot of the cross and um God is you know wanting to invite us to meet us there in the waters of baptism to die and rise again there's resurrection again it's an incredible invitation mm. Emma, thank you so much for your wisdom, for your time, uh, for your really fabulous thoughts. And um, we're really excited about your book and I'm just going to promote it one last time. It's called uh, A Pastoral Theology of Childlessness and it's available from SCM. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
and all good booksellers presumably will have it, um, particularly the Christian ones, and um, possibly even the um, huge uh, giant bookstore available online, but we won't mention them. Uh, <laughs> it's cheaper, on, cheaper at Blackwell's at the moment. Cheaper at Blackwell's, there we go. Um, and you're going to be launching that in May around the time of Baptist Assembly. So we, um, we'll be plugging that in different places and spaces in Baptist life as well. So um, we just encourage everybody to, to keep an eye on that. Thank you for your wisdom, for your time, for writing a book about something that um, must, yeah, must have cost you so much, but also we, we, I think the fact that you are the sort of person that takes pain and transforms it into resurrection is so telling. And we um, are really grateful for your time today. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're so welcome. Be a pleasure. Well, fascinating. Really enjoyed uh, listening to you and Emma talk together. And I know Emma a bit. I mean, Emma has been uh, down the road from us when she was uh, working for a local church. And uh, a lot of what she's been doing has been Essex-based and obviously being God's own county. And where we are at the moment, we've uh, appreciated her ministry. And she's been spoken at our church here a couple of times and always been uh, very much uh, appreciated in those uh, settings. Very struck by uh, where you guys started, really, with just the ongoing challenges for for women in, in Baptist ministry. And uh, I mean, I'm, I was on the Baptist Union's Women's Justice Group for a, a while uh, back in the day, and uh, it's an ongoing uh, passion. And I just lament the lack of uh, sort of depth to our progress uh, in in many ways. But uh, obviously, most of what Emma was sharing about the the broken theology, I'm really struck with the well, just how how capable Emma is at articulating her thoughts and uh, obviously the blessing that the blog has been to a number of people. Uh, some people reading it in similar circumstances, I'm sure, and appreciating that, but actually other people reading it in all sorts of different ways, but resonating with how you relate to and hear from God and how you calibrate your faith in the light of those experiences. Uh, I think it's such an important thing that we need to do with what happens uh, in life and something that we don't always have the space to do, I think, in church because it's sometimes a bit messy and complicated. So we crowd it out and we we don't want to go there because it's tricky. And so I think what Emma's doing in, in getting this out there and it is such a valuable thing. I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Uh, when it comes out but but what about you as you were doing it were there were there things that particularly struck you I think I think it's about Emma's honesty um that she she won't evangelize from a point that life will be shiny and perfect if you become a Christian but that actually God might somehow still be there in the depths of the painful bits of life um and and how complicated that is on so many theological and personal spiritual levels that, um, you know, that's about, you know, kind of personal intercession and, um, and, and just, yeah, all sorts, all sorts of things, isn't it? As well as like, where is God in the midst of, of evil and, and, and where is God in absence and grief and where is God in all those spaces? And she, she, she doesn't shy away from any of those huge questions and she just is prepared to look it in the face and say, okay, right, where is God? <laughs> let's write, let's write the theology because it doesn't exist yet. And um 
And I think um, one of the things I have become aware of as as a woman in ministry, actually, is just how common, how common these conversations are about women's bodies particularly. And it does seem to be Mm. that infertility seems to involve a particular conversation about women's bodies, even though it's not just a woman's body, but actually both bodies. But, you know, it seems to be one of those things becomes a woman's problem. And I'm doing high air quotes and, and nobody yeah. can see them um but it's 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 that and and there are so many others aren't there there are so many other scenarios that women exist through and live through and endure that are so complex that have no theology that goes with them and um you know i i have another friend who who said to me recently well where's the theology of the menopause and i thought where is the theology of the menopause? Because when I get there, I want there to be a theology of the menopause. Um, and and actually, they, these are these are whole conversations that um, that kind of get tiptoed around. And I think if you're a female minister, particularly, you um, you unlock those conversations. And I can't imagine how doubly complicated that might be when those conversations are your own conversation. And I, I just in awe of Emma going right. I'm going to write this. I'm going to write the guidelines. I'm going to write the goodness in. I'm going to make sure that it's better for the people that come after me because it wasn't there for me and it should have been. And I just, yeah, very proud. I think um, a really huge honour to know her, actually, because I think um, to look that squarely in the face and say, I'm going to make it better for the person that comes after me, I think really is a testimony to her character and her goodness. How much do you think the lack of um, theology and, and dialogue around the menopause or uh, childlessness um, and other uh, things that we might list, how much do you think part of that is because so often in our spaces where that dialogue might happen, if there is a, a female Baptist minister in the room, they might be the only one or there's only one or two. Like, how much would these things be spoken about more if there were more women in the spaces? I just wonder whether these things don't ever come as part of our sort of communal dialogue because most of the times mm-hmm. in the room, just the demographics of who's in the room make that tricky. I think that's a bit of it, but I think also we're, we're looking at a whole narrative of what is private and what is public that has gone on for so many centuries um and and so where where do you find that kind of like bringing the private into the public conversation where how do you how do you do that and I think really it's only in the last 20 to 30 years that that's started to happen and so there are obviously a lot there for a lot of women's experiences of a lot of different kinds of women as well like and I think some of the problem is that the women who who have been able to write have been um sometimes particularly affluent and um well educated and uh, maybe white i'm gonna name my own (laughs) race here like there's a kind of and so actually we we write from our own perspectives and that's not necessarily everybody else's experience as well like how, how do you capture how do you capture all of the experiences um so there is that i mean i'm struck ruth um ruth goldborn said this amazing uh, thing in one of her narratives around uh, women in Baptist ministry and women in evangelical ministry actually I think it wasn't even specifically Baptist where she talks about this idea of the third space that exists 
Um, mm-hmm. And they're, they're kind of what we've ended up doing with, with women in ministry is creating a third space um, that's kind of between the private and the public, where we say what we'll do is we kind of not quite ordain the minister's wife, but but kind of this idea of we'll ordain a woman to be in this this kind of third space where what they'll do is ministry to women and children and they kind of therefore assist, exist as this kind of associate or companion minister in some way. Um, and and then it's not quite the same thing as being the public minister, um, mm. but that's what we've got a narrative for in evangelicalism particularly. And and I I, find, I found that really helpful. She's drawn somebody else. Um, but I, th- I thought that was a really helpful idea because actually I think that is what we have done. What we what we fail to quite get across is this idea that actually um, women deserve to be soul pastors or um, senior ministers. What we have, and, and the statistics bear this out in the Baptist Union, is a huge amount of women in associate ministries. Um, and, and when that doesn't work out, usually end up in, um, in ministries that are uh, not directly in responsibility of a church in some way so they perhaps do what I've done and end up in uh, a kind of a role that is um more less less pastoral I suppose in some ways but more more kind of boundaried in others um and there's a really interesting there's some really interesting work coming out of um uh, particularly the Anglican women in ministry who've talked about intensive motherhood, so almost the opposite of Emma's experience, but um, but have talked about um, this idea of motherhood and how it's so intensive. How do you manage to be a mother and a priest? Because intensive motherhood is almost exactly the same thing as intensive priesthood, and you can't be both. It's physically impossible. And where um, where fathers are only emboldened by father language, so you know you can be father in Christ in a priestly sense and a father in Christ in um, um, a hus- you know kind of as a husband and as a father, and those things are seen to be kind of beneficial to one another. We can't do that in the same way with mothers. That there, there isn't there isn't that that it seemed to be a depletion in mothers, whereas it seemed to be like a some sort of um, magnification in in a father. And so um, what they've discovered in their language around that is overwhelmingly that um, women end, end up boundarying off motherhood and ministry in different ways. So often women will come into ministry after motherhood. Um, yes. So we do often have our women come in much later. Um, their kids at school age, their kids are at secondary school age, or they will, or they will think because that's, that's yet another example, actually, of how we exist in this third sphere. Yeah, I, I suspect that if we, uh, well, actually, we wouldn't even need to try very hard that between us we could talk about uh, women in ministry uh, for a very <laughs> long time. In a, and that's a good thing. Perhaps we'll do a, a special feature podcast at some point. <laughs> we'll get Jane Day on. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah, good idea. Always good to hear from Jane. So um, at the end, Emma um, mm. snuck in this comment about... Um, what she wanted for her rainbow siblings in Christ. And David, I think it's fair to say that you've got um, a fairly public profile on this now um, uh, and your stance on um, human sexuality in general, but conversion therapy in particular. And um, I guess what I want to ask is something around what, why, why maybe you've 
you've made that move. You've you've often said to me, well, this is an issue that's found me. And I, I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit. Crumbs, and this is another thing we could talk about for a very long time, I suspect. Um, so I'm very conscious that whatever I'm about to say will be inadequate and not the totality of everything that needs to be said. Um, but yes, this is n- not something I necessarily went seeking. You know, I know for some people, for the whole of their ministry, this has been a deep passion. And this is something that's grown in me over the time that I've been in ministry. And bizarrely, I think the thing that started me really on the road to thinking about this was was partly the the stories of, of friends and, and hearing the pain and the struggle of many of our LGBT sisters and brothers. But I think the thing that really pushed me to explore where I've ended up uh, and taking a fully affirming and inclusive uh, position is when people were having this conversation, the the people who were sort of seemed to be most troubled by that just always seemed very hostile and angry. And the, the people I was talking to who weren't seemed much more at peace and more gracious. And it just seemed more winsome to me. And that was kind of, that was important to me. I, I, I find tone makes a lot of difference to, to things that I find attractive. And, and I, I did a lot of reading, but ultimately it was that this is where our church got to in our discerning and thinking together, that I wouldn't have publicly taken positions in the way that I have been able to maybe in the last couple of years had my church not have also come to that place because ultimately my my covenant is, is with the church uh, well, and, and with God and with my sisters and brothers. Um, so I'm not denying any of that, but I think it would have been a very different nuanced way forward. Um, and I guess the fact that I was coming to the end of sort of my national responsibilities with the denomination gave me a bit more freedom than I might have had um, elsewhere. So, so yes, it's it's not something which I've spent 20 years uh, campaigning on, but it is something I've always been very prayerful about. I remember when my first uh, sort of friend came out to me um, and how I processed that. And I think I was very aware of the pain of that and how difficult it would be for someone who was a Christian, who was gay. But I think at that point, I could have gone down the road very easily of saying, I get that this is really hard and I feel all of that pain and turmoil, but actually this is what God, I think, requires of us and therefore we need to deal with that. Um, And it's a much more recent thing for me that I've been able to really think and pray and I'm very grateful for the people who've been very patient with me as I've done that. But as I've gone through this process over a number of years, uh, I've not at any point felt any unease about where I've ended up. I couldn't be more peaceful about it. But as you say, it's odd that this in many ways is become a bit of a defining thing uh, for me at this moment. It's it's never something I would have set out to have as a, a defining thing, but I'm very pleased to have had the opportunity to speak out and get involved uh, where I have and, and support friends um, in that way. And I'm very excited for our church having done that as well. And I think the key thing for churches is that we need to be clear about where we are. I think the lack of clarity is unkind. And I think if we've got people joining our churches, the worst thing in a way they could do is think that everything is okay. And then three years down the line, they realize that actually it isn't here. And so my thing is either everyone really is welcome 
or we should stop saying it. And I think even if a church comes to a position where they don't think that that is right before God, and I, I've got lots of friends for whom that would be absolutely where they are, and I have real respect for for all sorts of things in, in what they're thinking. Um, but in which case they need to own that. And I think it isn't fair. And I do think it is unkind um, to give this pretense that everyone is as welcome as everybody else when the reality is there are all sorts of barriers to full participation in our life together. So uh, more than anything, I'd encourage churches to really own where they are. I mean, ultimately, I'd like them all to end up, you know, in a similar place <laughs> to us. But, I, you know, I'm more concerned in these moments with the uh, the clarity. And just, you know, churches have been avoiding this for a very long time. And, you know, it's 25 years we've known this has come in, at least. And we've and so many churches studiously avoiding it. And because I'm not beholden to anybody nationally or regionally in many ways now, I can say this. Um, Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's why I'm doing the talking. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm not asking whether you agree or not or anything. I, it just seems to me that a lot of ministers agree but are afraid of having this conversation with their church because they know it's going to be painful. I just, I, I lose count of the amount of ministers who will say, I totally agree with where you are, but you know, it's not where my church is. And I mean, that's always an issue. This is not the only issue about which that has been an interesting challenge. And I'm not sure there is a painless way through it because it's about so much more than just sexuality. Um, in me, I think often the dialogue is really about a whole host of other things as well. I absolutely agree with that. That yeah. I think, um, you know, we, we we were joking in advance that this would be the highly editable part of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so if any of us, either of us, said anything, we needed to retract. We could, um, and and so far, I think we're good. Um, but I, um, I'm very aware from my work that this is the contentious issue in our union. That that um, that it seems to be this is. Um, the question of identity mm. is often um, it seems it seems to land here actually um, that this is the question of orthodoxy in a particular way and and I guess it's shadow boxing for a whole number of other issues. Um, so so my kind of theological reflection on that is that it's shadow boxing for how we read the Bible. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's shadow boxing um, for conversations about bodies. And it's interesting to me that we talk about the church as Christ's body and then we're talking about bodies. I think those things are very connected. Um, I, a very wise woman said to me very recently that um, that we talk about sexuality like it's a topic out there, but we will have sexualities. You know, we're, we're never talking about a sexuality like that exists in the kind of, you know, in the out there. We're always always reflecting our own experience and our own embodiment um and and i think there's there's a lot of other stuff we're also talking about post-christendom and church aren't we we're talking about how do we relate to society that seems to have changed beyond norms that we had thought we knew and what does mission appropriate mission look like into mm. that setting and what does appropriate pastoral care look like into that setting it's it's just there's so much in it there's so much in this conversation and so so I think I I think I said something like oh yes there that is very tricky yeah. <laughs> and what, what I really mean is there's just so much in this conversation um yeah. that wherever we come to on a theological 
spectrum of, of what we believe the Bible says and how we believe we should interpret it and how we believe we should be church together or not. Um, that, that actually there is this, um, yeah, there, there, there is there is just so much under the surface for all of us when we have this mm-hmm. conversation that um, I'm very, well, to be honest, I'm very impressed you've taken a, a local church through it because I can see that's why ministers would maybe say, well, I, I don't think I could because we all know the pastoral stuff that sits around it when mm. when we have these conversations as as church, um, as well as what we think or don't think the Bible might say. So yeah, there's there's there is so much there. And the irony um, of all of this, in some ways, is I think of all the denominations and groups of churches in our country, we are we should be we are the best placed to have divergent opinions on this and still be able to journey together. Our declaration of principle, from which our own podcast derives its name, sets us up to be able to exist alongside one another when we don't necessarily agree on every hermeneutical interpretation of everything. And we've managed to do that for so many other issues. You know, I I don't, I'm, I don't understand churches that don't do women in ministry. I don't, I don't get it. I, I think we should take a, a firmer stance on it. And everyone says to me, oh, no, declaration of principle. It must be, you know, we, we, we decide to coexist. And yet on this, it just feels like that's pushed a bit more. And I think for some, this is a bit of a um, the end of the line. We've put up with divorced ministers. We've put up with women. Yeah, all the things that we thought were the the ultimate, we can go no further. And this really is the, you know, I, I think this has become a, I will go this far, but no further. And, and that's not even just about this. And I feel in a way very sad that our gay friends and our gay sisters and brothers actually get caught up in something and uh, get, uh, well, have a whole load of pain <laughs> as a result of something which is, often not solely or even largely about about them and it yeah it's just so much bigger than that and anyway as i say this could uh occupy us for for some time but uh i suspect as a union this is not going away for a little while my hunch is not based on, based on the things i've seen and read and the conversations i'm having i think this is very much still at large um yeah I, I just I'm just thinking about what you said about women in ministry and our capacity to cope with the idea that the local church can have a divergent view, and that there might be a union view and a divergent view, and and that we could somehow live in tension with that. Um, I remember that happening when I was um exploring my own call to ministry, and I got the Baptist Times when it used to be a newspaper. Do you remember? Oh, I I love the Baptist Times newspaper. I mean, I I love the online work that Paul does now as well, but I love the newspaper. Yeah. Every Friday. Bit of a shout out to Paul because I know he was on the old fashioned version as well. Um, So uh, hi, Paul. We love you. Um, And um, I remember getting this in the in the post every week in my university flat share, you know, (laughs) of course. (laughs) Where else would you receive the Baptist time? Wow, Beth, that is another wow. level. I, I, I didn't have it until I was in ministry. I was well, not receiving it as part of my university <laughs> post. There, there, was, 
quite an important reason and that was that I was in Scotland which was not okay. at the time very comfortable with women in ministry no that's and, true um in not in the Baptist world and no. so I'd I um I'd gone along to my local Baptist church and I'd, I'd had a a rather frank conversation is probably the nice way of putting it with a lo- local minister who who refused to even have a conversation with me about being a minister um when I was exploring a call and he literally walked off in the middle of the conversation wow. so I realized that I wasn't going to be able to be a part of a local Baptist church so I wanted to maintain my Baptist identity while still being there and um I so I received the Baptist Times as my kind of little link in and there was this huge rage of conversation going on in the in the in the letters pages at the time about whether or not churches that didn't accept women in ministry should be expelled. And mm-hmm. I was really struck that the, that the people who kept writing in and saying, no, do not, do not send them on their way. Do not do that. Were women. And they were yeah. all women. And these, these women in ministry kept writing and saying, actually, I, I really want, I want them to be able to be here. And, um, this is important. We don't want to entrench people on this issue. This is part of our Baptist identity. If we lose our Baptist identity, we lose something about my ministry. And um, yeah, I found that um, really thought provoking because at the time, you know, it was still very, it was a tentative exploration of this is something I think is happening inside me and what is God calling me to be and what is God calling me to do. And I was like, am I open to being a part of a denomination that sees itself in this light? And am I part of being a part of a group of women who who will advocate for the other at their own cost, you know, actually, mm. what does that mean? And am I prepared to be that? And, um, but it's a, it's a story that's, you know, it's, it's some of the, one of those things that's been actually quite defining actually my own, my own Baptist ministerial identity. And um, yeah, I don't know why I'm telling you this story other than I guess it's the thing that's made me aware of my own inclusion or exclusion. And I think that's probably one of those conversations that we're having in this bigger conversation, isn't it? It's, it's you know how how do we draw those lines where what does scripture say and where does it say it and are are these even connected issues you know some people would say mm. yes no really complicated um it's tricky as i said earlier as you said. <laughs> <laughs> so we end where we began i love it <laughs> we probably should move towards uh, the blessing to finish uh, yeah. This is my turn this week. I get to use and so uh, our thanks again to the Order of Baptist Ministry for providing uh, these words, and our thanks again to Emma for being part of our Absolutely. episode today. Yeah, and thank you to everybody for listening in, um, putting up with our ramblings and <laughs> and careful euphemisms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those who have ears to hear. Um, <laughs> so let us uh, finish with this blessing, Living God. Enable us this day to be pilgrims and companions, committed to the way of Christ, faithful to the call of Christ, discerning the mind of Christ, offering the welcome of Christ, growing in the likeness of Christ, engaging in the mission of Christ, in the world that belongs to Christ. Amen. Great to see you, Beth. Have a really good week. Bye. Bye.